Hello and welcome to Grace Lutheran Church Sermon Podcasts. On this podcast, you will hear the latest sermons taken from our weekly worship service. Our hope is that you will find joy and comfort in knowing the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Sometimes understanding a parable, and we're focusing on the parables now, sometimes understanding a parable is not easy. Jesus' parables call those who hunger and thirst for salvation. They reveal the mercies of the kingdom of God. But equally, parables reveal the kingdom of God and God's judgment against the sinful world. These parables are our less favorite parables. When parables judge and condemn, it appears they don't square with what we want the kingdom of God to be like. Take Peter, for instance. One time Peter thought he knew what the kingdom of heaven was. But when Jesus said the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, Peter took him aside and corrected him. This shall never happen to you, Jesus. That's not what the kingdom of heaven was like for Peter. How embarrassing for Peter. Our study of the parables continues and we leave Matthew chapter 13 and Jesus' broad field agricultural parable about weeds and wheat and treasures and mustard seed. These parables taught us that from a tiny seed, God's word calls those who are hungering and thirsting in faith to Christ and to follow. Following Christ's words, those seeds bear fruit as they wait for the final harvest. God's kingdom would grow into an enormous tree to house all believers from all nations, cultures, ethnicities, to take over the world. But to those who refused, judgment will come. They reveal the Messiah. Now we move to chapter 18, five chapters later, where Jesus' parables focus on life in the kingdom, and the parables shift to issues of mercy and justice in the kingdom of heaven through images of God's vineyard. Jesus now enters another phase of his ministry as well, preparing for his trial and his crucifixion. We see this from the verses right before our parable today. Jesus tells his disciples a second time, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew writes, the disciples were greatly distressed. That's not what the kingdom of heaven should be like for Peter and the disciples. None of this was lining up with the way the disciples would finish the sentence, the kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, the further they go on this journey with Jesus, the more confused the disciples become. And Judas dropped out altogether because this was not what he thought the kingdom of heaven was like. But even in their great distress, they can't help to wonder about their position in the future kingdom. Political interests, of course. They ask Jesus, uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They could have used other words like, how am I doing, Jesus? 
Am I righteous? Or can I be vice president? When people like you and me or the disciples speak, there is always some angle, some hidden agenda. Am I right? We want to put our best foot forward with God and show him how our works have deservedly won his approval for a higher position in his kingdom. It's like a child vying for approval of their parents to be labeled best child over their siblings. Don't tell me you didn't do that as a child if you have brothers or sisters. As if being part of the family wasn't good enough. For all God's children, people, Peter included, it seems self-righteous promotion outweighs being clothed with Jesus' righteousness. We want our worthy works to be noticed over our repentant faith. The disciples are really interested in their place in the kingdom when it comes. Remember that the predominant view among the Jews was that the Messiah was a political liberator who was going to restore God's kingdom ruled by the Jewish leaders and kick the Romans out. They are interested. So who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Will we be the new leaders, Peter's asking? A rabble-rousing revolt against the Romans? Marxist overthrow of the Roman bourgeois hegemony? Now, of course, we don't know all the history between the disciples. But since we share the same human nature with the disciples, I think it's safe to assume that jealousy was involved here. Since Jesus singled out Peter after he confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, telling Peter, blessed are you, Simon Peter, son of Jonah. There were probably a few disciples who thought, damn, I should have said that. Go, Peter. Go, Peter. Go, Peter. The disciples' question about the greatest indicates they were probably out-competing each other's worthiness for a leadership spot. Jesus sees that the disciples' preconception about his kingdom have become misconceptions. He answers their question indirectly through the parable, shifting their focus from who is the greatest by beginning with who makes up the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, in calling to him a little child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus allows the disciples to answer greatness only after he reminds them of how they entered the kingdom of heaven. You must be in the kingdom first before you consider the greatest question. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, take a step back and consider how you entered the kingdom of heaven. Your hunger and thirst led you to me in whom you now have faith as the Messiah. Had nothing to do with appraisals about performances. Jesus continues, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, the key to this parable is understanding what is meant by children and child. Perhaps their childlike character in their relationship to Jesus and salvation. Now, when you hear become like children, 
There's probably lots of things floating around in your head, and you think about the qualities and characteristics of children. What do they have that I don't? So you think, innocent. Children are innocent. That's easy. I can become innocent. You can act innocent. I can act naive. In fact, one thing that they do in Latin America, if you look in a mirror and just kind of pull up on this bridge here, you can look pretty innocent when you look in the mirror. Your eyebrows kind of go up like, you know? You can look innocent. But children can be brats, little devious creatures. They're torturous to their own peers. And they seek power over their own peers. That's why they play games. They want to come out on top. Innocence? Maybe not. Trusting. A A child has an innocent trust. Look at that child. It'd be nice if children trusted their parents and other authorities, but who's kidding? What child, when he or she hears mom or dad say, trust me, we know what's best for you? doesn't at least think, if not say, no, I don't think so. I don't trust you, at least not as much as I trust me. What are we saying? Innocent? Naive? Trusting? Are we talking about preconditions when Jesus says, become like children? To be like children is to behave like children and therefore earn a place in God's kingdom? Are children a part of the kingdom of heaven because they are innocent or because they're trusting or naive? Psalm 51 teaches us, in sin my mother conceived me. So from birth, you're really a guilty brat. Guilty from birth in sin. Not simply by what you do, but by who you are in sinful nature, fallen humanity. As Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when you read scripture, when I read scripture, why do we always think that it's telling you something that you have to do? Immediately when we go and read scripture, it's something that we have to do. I hope you've seen so far that the kingdom of God is something God does and something Jesus offers Parables reveal Christ in his kingdom as an invitation to seek and to follow him. It is, however, inevitable that you think of fictitious, childlike characteristics that exist in our society. How our society prizes and praises children. Our society idealizes the young and the purity of children. But in first century Judaism, society was different. Children were not spoiled. They were a little more than slaves. In the Roman world, a child was worthless and could be left on the side of the road to die if the father wanted it. A child could be sold into slavery to pay off parental debts. At one point, fathers were not obligated to feed their children. On occasion, parents abandoned their children. So what is Jesus talking about here? A UNICEF project in the Middle East that will declaim the rights of children? What does Jesus want us to see in children that we should turn like them? 
To note here, the Greek that Jesus uses, the term for child, means infant. We're not talking about a six or seven-year-old. The one innate biological feature that unites all children everywhere, overriding any culturally conceived characteristic, is that children cry. It's not a quality. It's not learned. It's a visceral, gut-initiated reaction to the world around them. Crying is a part of their creatureliness. It's a part of their nature. Completely powerless, helpless. A child's cry is their only weapon in the battle for survival. Hoping that someone will hear them. Someone come to their aid. Someone take care of their needs. Which means that children are totally dependent. Babies and little children are helpless and vulnerable, dependent on mom and dad to provide all that they need. And when they are in need of something or something is wrong, babies and little children don't know how to solve the problem. They can only cry. Crying is part of your creatureliness as well. You cry when you ache. You cry when you're afraid. In pain and in sorrow and frustration, you cry out. When you're depressed, when you're lonely, you cry out. You cry out when you're lost and when you're alone. You cry to survive when you cannot thrive. You cry for help when you're hopeless, and you cry for hope when you're helpless. Crying out is your only weapon against the wicked world sold to sin. You bear in your bones, in your DNA, the pain of a broken life in a broken world. Who wouldn't cry out? Like Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, you live on the island of misfit toys and cannot leave nor fix yourself. Like children, you are vulnerable of being left alone on the shore of a deserted island starving and unattended. You cry because you are trapped in your world. Half the time you don't know what's wrong. You just want someone to hold you, to attend to you, care for you. As a child, you depend on your parents, but a human parent can do so much, but they can't solve every problem. They are at best a band-aid for your skinned knee but they certainly cannot solve death. Sometimes that cry that we have is a groan of desperation. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So you and I can only cry out, like little children, for our Heavenly Father's love and his ever-abundant mercy. We cry out to the Lord, save us, and he graciously has. You undoubtedly cried out when you were born. 
You most likely cried when that cold water touched your heads as you were brought into the kingdom of God through baptism if you were a child. You cry as you bring your sins and brokenness to God for healing. In reality, you really ain't nothing but a hound dog. (laughs) Crying all the time. We cry as God's children, not in desperation, but in hungering and thirsting after our loving Father who hears us. That's why you see all over Scripture, Psalm 18, In my distress I called to the Lord. I cried out to my God. From his heavenly temple he heard my voice. He listened to my cry for help. Isaiah chapter 30, God will surely be gracious to you and and the sound of your cry. Isaiah 30, 19. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. Lamentations 3, verse 56. You heard my plea for mercy when I said, do not close your ears to my cry for relief. When Israel was a slave in Egypt, the Lord says, In Exodus 3, 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Finally, Paul reminds you as a lost child in Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we pray, our Father, who art in heaven. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The one to whom God shows his love and his mercy. You are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus cried for unrepentant Jerusalem who would not come home. He cried before the tomb of Lazarus before he gave him life. He cried from the cross, it is finished. And from the cross, he has heard your cry. No longer orphaned, no longer broken. You have a home. He is your hope amid helplessness. And your help amid hopelessness. You are dependent on him for his mercy. And his mercy is new every day. You are the greatest in the kingdom of God the children of God, who have received mercy. Amen. To know more about Jesus and our ministry at Grace Lutheran Church, please find us at www.gracealoneonline.org. You'll find additional sermon podcasts and your favorite podcast channel every week at www.gracealoneonline.org forward slash sermons.